Okay, well, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, where we are going to continue our verse-by-verse study of this letter that Paul wrote 2,000, almost 2,000 years ago to this church in Ephesus. And if you recall, we were speaking of this concept of in Christ alone, or solus Christus is the, the fancy Latin term for it, Uh, but meaning that in Christ alone has God the Father chosen to reveal his glory. In Christ alone is all of our hope and faith and trust. And we saw last time we were together that in Christ alone is there redemption and the forgiveness of sins, that there is no other place we can turn for the very reason we spoke of with the children, that there is no other one who has lived a perfect sinless life and then credited that to our account. Now today we're going to see uh, uh, almost a dual truth. It's, it's, it, it, is, it is one truth, but perhaps in two parts, that in Christ alone we are his inheritance and we have an inheritance. In Christ alone we are his inheritance and we have an inheritance. Now when you think of inheritance, you think of, of trust, you think of, uh, of people who have passed on and left their belongings to another, uh, and I just started thinking of, you know, everything I own. If I were to think about, if you were to think about everything you own, every possession, every property, every dollar, some of you I know would have spreadsheets and could give me the exact amount of everything that you own, a near exact dollar figure perhaps. Others would be able to list everything they have almost on two hands. Most of us, though, would probably admit that we do have a lot of stuff. This is Southern California. It's one of the nicest and richest and most prosperous places to live, not only in California, not only in America, but in not only in the world, but in terms of human history, the human history of the world. We are very, very blessed. And I just started thinking, what would it take for you to even contemplate exchanging that, giving that up for not some other, you know, equal or greater value thing, but an idea, a concept. That is the kind of process of thinking that we as Christians ought to have here as we think about being God's inheritance and having an inheritance. The very notion of being Christian is exactly to say, everything I own is nothing in comparison to belonging to God and having God. That's a very hard calculation to make at times when, frankly, God is not telling you right this moment, likely, to give up everything you have and follow him, like he asked the rich young ruler. Instead, we are in the more dangerous position to daily count all that we have as loss and say, Lord, if you were to take it, if you need it, it is yours. But think, what would you ever exchange all that you have for? And God is saying, how about simply belonging to me? For me to possess you, is that worth all of your possessions? In Ephesians, we've already seen so many 
deep and profound and wonderful truths. We've talked, you know, so much about the blessings we have. We've talked about even predestination, which will come up again today. We've talked about the forgiveness of sins. And yet, if we were to only fixate on that which God gives and not God himself, we can miss the point. If the most glorious thing about heaven is the streets of gold or seeing your loved ones or being away from all the corruption and sin in this world, which are all wonderful ideas, if the main thing that attracts us about heaven is not God himself, to belong to God, then I think Paul would say, are we really even followers of Christ? Read with me in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. In him, that is Christ, you could add, in him alone, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. Now, the first idea here is that we, in Christ, we are the inheritance of God. In other words, we are what God receives and possesses. Now, you might be saying, well, hold on, I don't, I don't see that here. It says in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. And, and here I will say that there is um, a lot of commentaries and Bible translations that go somewhat back and forth on how to translate the verb. It's one verb there, obtained an inheritance in Greek. The problem is it occurs one time in the New Testament. And uh, the nature of it is such that you could translate as, we have possessed an inheritance or we are a possessed inheritance. Does that make sense? Like either we are or we are going to possess an inheritance, or we are the inheritance that's going to be possessed. Now, I won't go into all of, the, <laughs> all of the, the details about why this gets translated this way and that way, but I, I do believe that what Paul is setting up here is a dual truth, and it maybe even might be more clear when we get to the work of the Holy Spirit in a second, but I, I believe this is speaking not so much of the fact that we will gain inheritance, that we as Christians receive something from the Lord, which is gloriously true. We're going to talk about it in just a moment. But this is speaking of the fact that in God's providence, providence and plan, we belong to him. And this is a theme that occurs all throughout the Old Testament. I just want to point out one, one passage like this. This is a Deuteronomy 14.2. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but um, you see this theme occurring, especially in the books, these first five books of the Bible, where God is constantly reiterating that he wants the Israelites to be his people. That is God's purpose and goal. And so you see passages uh, like this, Deuteronomy 14.2, for you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. 
and Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. In what we call the Old Testament, but uh, you could also call it the Hebrew Scriptures. Jewish people don't call the Old Testament the Old Testament because for them it's still very current. Um, So they they call it uh, other terms. Um, But there's this theme throughout the Old Testament that the nation of Israel was God's chosen people. Chosen people to be his treasured possession. From Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, from Jacob to his sons who would eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel and form the nation of Israel, the story of the Old Testament follows this people and this nation as they ultimately fail to truly be God's people. Not a fault of God, but of their own sin, of their own pride, of their own ego. Now, those words in Deuteronomy written about 1400 B.C., so that's 30 3,400 years ago. Well, 700 years after those words in Deuteronomy where God was expressing to his people as they're about to enter into the promised land, I want you to be my chosen people, my treasured possession, after hundreds of years of corruption, after hundreds of years of them going after other gods, he sent the prophets to speak to them, to pronounce judgment on them. And one prophet was Hosea. And if you want to turn there, you may, um, it's sort of towards the end of your uh, Old Testament in a section that begins the minor prophets. Now, they're called the minor prophets, not because they're any lesser, but because their books are shorter. Um, <laughs> that I don't know if I, I would have probably called it something else <laughs> than the minor prophets because it seems like the major leagues and the minor leagues, so we're reading the minor league prophets? No, it's not that. They are just as uh, authoritative, uh, just as men of God, speaking the word of God, as anyone else in the Bible. But we do call them the minor prophets. The first minor prophet, Hosea. And this is written, uh, or these prophecies are given about 700 B.C. So from 1400 B.C. about in Deuteronomy, hundreds of years have passed. We come now to the time of Hosea, just for reference, America is only 245 years old, if my calculations are, wait, 200, oh, 1776, right? Did I get it right? 246, okay. Oh, yeah, we just had a birthday. Okay, all right. (laughs) July 4th, oh, yeah, all right, 246, thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Rich. He's an accountant. (laughs) So after 700 years of God calling Israel to be his people, they had finally fallen into sin so much over and over again that God was going to punish them by sending this pagan nation, the Assyrians, in 722 B.C. to destroy 10 of those 12 tribes of Israel. So 722 B.C. is almost exactly 2,700 years ago. He sent this prophet Hosea to warn them. But God had kind of an unusual way to grab their attention. He told Hosea to marry a prostitute to symbolize that Israel was like an unfaithful, adulterous woman and that that Hosea the prophet was like kind of God in this picture and he was to marry this adulterous, unfaithful prostitute to symbolize that Israel had become 
like a prostitute herself. Then God tells Hosea, you're going to have children, and I want you to name them in a very specific way to show my judgment. So the children, the offspring, were going to be a kind of a prophecy. And this is like the opposite of naming your children faith or charity or something like that. Hosea's children were to be named Jezreel, Lo Ruhamah, and Lo Ami. Now, of course, those are Hebrew words. What do they mean? Well, Jezreel was a place where God was going to bring judgment. It's a location. Lo Ruhamah means no mercy. So imagine, you name your child mercy. Beautiful name. You may name one of them, no mercy. I mean, it's it's meant to be like that is kind of offensive, right? If if a, a parent were to name their own offspring something so like heinous, you, you would recoil. You would say you would judge that parent immediately. And yet, the Israelites, if they were to think that way, the point is, why don't you think that way about your sin, which has brought God to this point where he's going to disgustingly kind of name these children something so awful. Your sin is what brought about the story. Why don't you think of your sin in such a way and, and as seriously? Another child would be named Lo Amin, which means not my people. Hosea 1, 8 and 9, when she, that is the the wife had weaned no mercy. She conceived and bore a son, and Yahweh said to call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. That is such a condemning response. Remember, God's desire was that they would be his treasured possession. They would be his people. Israel was supposed to be a blessing to other nations, not judged by them. Israel was supposed to be merciful because God was so merciful to them. Yet Israel had become a wicked, evil nation at this time. Israel was supposed to be God's people, set apart, beloved children, but they acted traitorously. God was going to reject them. Jezreel, no mercy, not my people. But this wasn't permanent. This, their names were not forever. These poor kids. Throughout the Old Testament, God had continued to remind the Jewish people of this promise and this hope that one day they would really know God's mercy. They would really find salvation and they really would be God's people. Truly, not just as a title, not just as a label. Yeah, we're God's chosen people, but as a matter of their hearts being changed and transformed. And God said that he would do this over and over again throughout the prophets, throughout the Old Testament. I am going to do this. I am going to transform your hearts. I am going to give you, uh, make you my people by my own power, my own love, my own mercy. And we see that just one chapter later, later, Hosea chapter 2, 21 through 23. And in that day, I will answer, declares Yahweh, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. 
God promised this day would happen. If you read the whole context, it's clear that God is making a promise that he is going to do this, that despite whatever waywardness Israel was going to experience, one day this day would surely come. And this overlaps, you know, what we talked about, predestination. Predestination, um, really, we can get wrapped up in the who. Well, who is predestined? And, and is it fair that, 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 that some are chosen for this or that? And really, what Paul concerns himself with is that the what of predestination and the how of predestination. God has the power and prerogative to establish his will and make things happen according to his design. That's what it means. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's just a statement about God. Is God powerful enough to do what he wants to do? Yes. Is God wise enough to have a good purpose and plan? Yes. Can you trust God? That this is going to work out in some way, somehow, to be glorious and good. Yes, you can trust him. It is about the character and nature of God. God's ability to accomplish his plan, that he can promise the Israelites and us that there's a day of restoration, a day when God will bring all people, all of his people to himself, no matter, no matter what has happened in our life. God's sovereign predestining plan means that no matter the circumstances we go through, no matter what happens to us, we know that they are put in place by God so that he can have his people. He is not going to fail to get his possession, to get his inheritance that is us. God isn't interested, the Bible says, in the blood of goats and animals. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is his anyway. So <clears throat> what could God possibly want under heaven? He wants us. He wants us to be trophies of his grace and his mercy. He wants us to, to praise and glorify. He wants us, we'll see in a moment, to even share his authority and his glory with. Tremendous. Now, in Ephesians, Paul isn't just talking about Jewish people. Everything we just read is kind of specifically oriented towards the Jews. We're talking about Hosea and you're talking about Deuteronomy, but Paul is not speaking of just Jewish people being God's inheritance, but all who believe. We know that because it's going to be a major theme in the next chapter. One of the surprises of God's purpose and plan his predestining purpose and plan is that God has chosen not just one nation from all the nations, but people from every nation. Ephesians 2, 18 and 19. For through him, that is Jesus, we both have, that is Jews and non-Jews, access in one spirit to the Father so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In other words, we are not just talking about God's possession, God's chosen people just being from one particular group, you know, the, the sons of Jacob or something like that. No, 
We're talking about men and women and children from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so when Paul says back in Ephesians 1 that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, we're we're not talking uh, about, you know, the, the Jews per se, just talking about all who believe, beginning with those who first heard the gospel. When Jesus died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and then left his his disciples to begin to speak and tell of all that God had done that started this global mission and message of people hearing that their sins can be forgiven. They can be right with the holy God through Jesus Christ. And so this is just talking about Yes, there are some who first hoped in in Jesus those 2,000 years ago, but from the disciples of Jesus to the Jews at Pentecost, to Paul the Apostle, to the Gentiles in the Roman Empire, through to the spread of the gospel to Africa and Asia and America, all the way to now, we are all part of this inheritance. We are all this beautiful collage of cultures and languages and backgrounds that represent God's people. And of course, God's people will be found from all over the world. And as with everything that we've read so far in Ephesians, we see that he says once more, to be to the praise of his glory. God is doing this in order to make how glorious he is known. The gospel message, the word of God going forth to All the world is exactly for the purpose of his glory being spread across this entire planet, which God had made. Why does this give glory to God? How does this change how I think or or feel about something? How can I apply this? And and my attention, my heart was drawn to this idea because it's such a buzzword now, you know, diversity. Well, truly, God's glory is in a diverse people belonging to one God. The Bible starts off with two humans made in the image of God, the source of all humanity. Yet they sinned against God. They try to be like God. They try to take God off the throne, replace him with themselves. And because of their rebellion and their sin, all of their generations, all their children and children's children, even till now, Their sin spread to all of them. And we see that that has brought grief and misery to themselves and to the world. That human history is full of war and conflict. Neighbor against neighbor, family against family, tribe against tribe, nation against nation, country against country. That is a result of sin. The fact that there are discriminations, the fact that there's racism, elitism, culturalism, those are all boundaries that sinners make amongst each other because we're sinners and we've got to feel like we're better than another person somehow, some way. Now, the few things on the internet that actually warm my heart, because so much of it is just so awful, is when I see people from, well, besides, you know, cute animals and things, but one of the things that really touches my heart is when I see people come together. 
that you would say, those two, why would they come together about anything? Now, one of the glorious things then about living in Southern California is that there is in our neighborhoods, in our backyards, so many people of different cultures and backgrounds. You just look around this room, and I, I bet you we could have you know, more than a dozen countries, well, maybe way more than that, represented just here. If there's any group that should be known for appreciating and loving, quote-unquote, diversity, for loving people regardless of their culture or background or race or economic status, it should be churches. It should warm your heart every day thinking that people from all over the world are worshiping the same God. I appreciate when uh, Pastor Chris brought up that gentleman in his prayer this morning to remember that there are brothers and sisters in the Lord with very different skin tones, very different home languages, very different, you know, <laughs> life patterns and daily routines than us, maybe never seen a car before, that are still somehow worshiping the same God because there is only one God who made all things. And especially with the, we should be blessed that we don't have to go very far to experience that kind of diversity in God having a chosen people that is not just like me and looks like me and sounds like me. Christians above all other peoples on the earth should care about reaching out to people regardless of where they come from and their background. That's not just about missions, by the way. I'm not talking about this as if I'm going to give you a big call to, you know, we need to, you know, uh, get our missions program growing and we need to start thinking about it. No, I... I mean, right now, that should change how we think about people, how we talk to people, knowing that God has his people amongst a great host of different tribes and tongues and nations. That should change how we think of others. Anyone can be one of God's chosen people, and we should have a desire to see God glorified in that beautiful collage and that tapestry. Now, having said all that, at the same time, that, I, that diversity can only exist within the idea of being united about something or belonging to something. One of the failures of this idea of diversity in today's culture, frankly, is, is the fact that you have to draw boundaries somewhere. There's no group out there that is saying that celebrating diversity means that everyone is right, everyone can do what they want, and no one can judge anyone else. That is not a true definition of diversity. It's impossible because at some point, someone's idea of good and right is going to say that someone else's idea of right or good is actually wrong and evil. So how can I, have a very, how can I say diversity means everyone is just as, let's say, uh, everyone's viewpoint, everyone's uh, ideas are equivalent to each other, that, is, that would be to say that right is wrong, good is evil, and none of that matters. No, no one defines diversity that way, even the most diverse. There's always something that is central 
that draws that diversity, that, 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 that must create that diversity, that respects diversity. You can't universally accept everything. The church should be the most truly understanding and appreciative and defining of diversity because we are saying there is one God and that should draw everyone because we are all, all human beings are made in the image of God and we all owe our lives to a creator. So there's nothing more broadly calling than for God himself who made all things to say, hey, you, you, know, you, you need to be with me. I, I made you. I, I want you. You should be here and enjoying your life in the context of how I made you. That is the most broad umbrella you could ever think of. And so there is no truly more, let's say, diverse call or respect of diversity than that should happen in churches. And yet we have to understand, of course, that there are boundaries to that too. Because anything that is contrary to God and his values and his character and nature obviously cannot be a part of that. Now, I don't get to define where the boundaries are, who can be in here, who cannot. Only the word of God can. And the word of God says that I accept and embrace anyone who here we see has had redemption through his blood, who has been forgiven of their sins in Christ alone, who have been uh, one, of the, one who has put their hope in Christ. I cannot discriminate on anything else other than that, on that. So if they belong to God, you are my brother. You are my sister. That's very diverse to say that and yet it must be diversity about the most you know biggest umbrella of of, of god <laughs> i mean I, ho I hope that makes sense to you i just there's you know ask someone what they think diversity really means and um i can almost guarantee they're not going to say something like that that it's it's the appreciation and the respect that we owe to all because we have been made in the image of God and that the church is the place where all those who have reconciled to God through the only means possible for reconciliation, Jesus Christ. So regardless of skin color, regardless of race, background, language, we are all one. That's why I like the sense here in Ephesians about being God's inheritance, his people, his possession. The beauty of diversity can only be found when we recognize that God is the one who made us in this beautiful array of colors and cultures, and that it is sin. When we talk about what is the greatest threat to diversity, the Christian says it is sin. Sin is what causes strife. Sin is what messes up that beautiful picture that God wants to paint with our differences, with our uniqueness, with our different um, backgrounds and experiences. And that's why then Jesus had to die to take away the sin so that we could truly be God's people in all of our diversity. In Christ alone, through faith and belief in him, the second Adam, the first Adam, cursed us, set us against each other, made those boundaries and discriminations through the second Adam who died for the sins of mankind, regardless of race and background. We are now his possession, his inheritance. We belong to
to him in all of our beautiful array of colors and cultures. We are God's inheritance, God's possession. We can get through this. Okay, third, in Christ alone. And really just, just an expansion of one. In Christ alone, we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. In Christ alone, we, we are God's inheritance. And in Christ alone, we receive an inheritance. We do receive, we do get something as well for being a Christian. It's just, what is it? Well, speaking to the Ephesians, Paul sets it up first this way. He says, when they heard the word of truth, the gospel, they believed in Jesus for salvation. So there is kind of a, a predicate that uh, before we receive this inheritance, which he's going to talk about, there is a precondition that you must hear the word of truth, that is the gospel, that is the word of God, and then you must believe in him, Jesus, that the scriptures reveal. And we've already talked about the exclusivity, exclusivicity, exclusivicity, yeah, okay, <laughs> of Jesus Christ. That in him alone is salvation because he alone has died for sinners who lived, who was sinless, lived a perfect life, and laid down his life so that his perfect life could be credited to our account by faith. We believe in him, and then God will look at us as if we had not sinned. As he looks at the son on the cross as though he were the sinner. If you believe in him, if you have that testimony in your life, in your heart, then you now get to be an inheritor. You get to be an heir to the promises. Um, won't go there. All right. Uh, if you want to hear about how the church in Ephesus started, you'd go to Acts chapter 18 and 19. And you can read there, Ephesus, we talked about this before, is very pagan and very prosperous. Right? One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there in Ephesus. Ephesus is called the Temple of Artemis. And actually, there was a blacksmith who started a riot because he made his money selling little figurines out of you know, metal and gold and silver. And he sold that to the tourists and the people. And the, Jew, uh, the Christians were coming into Ephesus and saying, you know, gods made with your own hands are not really gods which is true. I mean, how could a thing that I made with my hands be God? A very obvious kind of truth. But people were starting to say, yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. So what, what happens if your business is selling little figures and, and, uh, of different gods that you made with your hands? Well, your business starts to go down. And so <laughs> uh, he starts a riot. And it's not necessarily that the blacksmith cared about defending the honor of the gods. He definitely cared more that his paycheck was being impacted by the ministry of these Christians. In other words, to be a Christian in Ephesus meant there was some amount of conflict and persecution because what they did, how they lived, it impacted the city even economically. Christian convictions, it produced such an impact that some in that community were like, this is actually putting us out of business. Now, if you read the rest of the account in Acts 19, the Christians were innocent of breaking any laws. And actually, the, the, the government, the local government actually recognized, look, we, as far as we can tell, they haven't broken any laws. So you, you need to figure this out. So the Christians were not trying to cause any trouble. They were not trying to put anyone out of business, per se. 
But the people of Ephesus persecuted and arrested some of those Christians. Now, throughout many times and places, Christians have suffered persecution and had to deal with the reminder that this world is not our home. It isn't our ultimate place of belonging. What Paul says next is that no matter what happens to us in life, we have a guarantee that we will one day receive all the promises of God. When the Ephesians heard the gospel, leave Jesus, they were sealed, Ephesians 1.13 says, sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Let's talk about inheritance first. We talked about being an inheritance, but what does inheritance mean here now as something we receive? Well, we talked about this a little bit already when we talked about being adopted as sons. Jesus Christ is the only Son of God. Remember, that's a statement about a relationship within the Godhead, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God being the Son is not a statement of Jesus being created or somehow not existing at some point. It is simply uh, one of those kind of mysterious truths that God exists in a triunity within himself where there are different persons, different roles and relationships, but one single divine nature. And Jesus Christ in his role as a son is someone who receives an inheritance. Of course, our natural understanding of inheritance is that which a child or children receive when their parents pass away. But unlike that earthly inheritance that you receive when the parent, the heir, or not the heir, but um, the, the one who has the inheritance dies, Jesus as fully God and fully man has been given the right to rule over the creation as king and Lord by God the Father, who of course being God cannot die. And in a sense, Jesus secured this inheritance by his own death. So that part is a little different. But God the Father as a father in that role is giving to Jesus the son this inheritance, this, uh, you almost call it a gift, to rule and reign over the creation as its Lord, the sovereign Lord. But they have also, the Father and the Son, ordained and planned to treat us, his people, like his children, that, that God the Father looks at all those who place their faith in Jesus and he sees us worthy of the same inheritance and status as Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus, we've already mentioned this before, is going to share his rule and reign and authority over the world with us. He's going to share his relationship with the Father, that unique oneness. He is going to share that with us. All the glories of eternal Life and the riches and the joys and the happiness he is going to share with us. That's what the inheritance is. And the way that we know that we are both God's inheritance, his people, and that we will receive an inheritance is that God gives us the Holy Spirit. Notice that Paul says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is also our guarantee. Or you might even have a little note that says down payment. 
sealing something is to put like a personally identifying stamp on it. So say you had an important letter, you could seal it with hot wax, and then you make your, uh, an impression on it with a ring or some kind of insignia, and that means, that seal means that this letter was authentic, it belonged to, it came from so-and-so. When we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit likewise puts a seal on us, not literally like a tattoo or, or something like that, but spiritually we are marked as God's possession, God's people, just as we talked about. The Holy Spirit is something that identifies us as belonging to him. We are his inheritance. The Holy Spirit is also like a guarantee or down payment. Well, what does that mean of the inheritance that we will receive? Well, how do we know that all of those promises and things we just talked about that Jesus is going to share with us are really ours? Well, God gives us himself. That's how we know. God gives us the third person of the Trinity to dwell in us. And there's nothing of greater value or worth than God. So it's funny that it's like a down payment when having God is the greatest you know, value and worth. So it's almost like the opposite, like to give you the main thing. I mean, we have God dwelling in us. So, uh, you know, down payment, you know, you think of like I'm putting 20% down. The Holy Spirit's 20% of what you're going to receive in heaven or something like that. No, like, for God to dwell in us, that's already amazing, incredible. So it's almost one of those like understated things. Like the third person of the Trinity is the down payment, is the guarantee of this. Well, of course, then, I will be given everything else. In other words, God is saying that through the Holy Spirit, we have this promise because the Holy Spirit indwells us and will be with us until the day we go to be with him that he is going to carry us through. Now, how does this, how does this apply? How does this help us in any way? Well, if you want to know that you are God's inheritance, and that you will receive God's inheritance, we need to know that the Spirit has sealed us and dwells in us. I mean, it, this helps us to, to know something about our relationship to God is, is, is the Spirit in our lives. Now, I know that in some churches, they would say that you know if the Holy Spirit is in you if you can speak tongues or you can do some kind of miraculous you know, healing or, or prophecy. Well, at our church, just so you know, if you're visiting, we believe that those things, most of those things were very unique to the birth of the church in Acts. Now, we don't think that miracles don't happen today, but as far as someone being able to say, I can, by my word, heal someone, we believe that's one of those things that authenticated the ministers of the early church. We'll talk about it later if you want. But the fact is that as you read through the rest of the epistles, you don't really hear about those miraculous workings of the Spirit as a proof of the Holy Spirit working in you. In fact, that diminishes very early on in the history of the church. Looking for the hallmarks of the Spirit in your life is actually more like looking for evidences of Christ-likeness. How do you know if the Spirit is in you? It's not necessary that I can speak in tongues or, or something like that. Ephesians actually will talk more about this. So I'm going to go through these, these very fast, knowing that we're going to expand on them more. But you know what one of the marks of the Holy Spirit that it has sealed you and it is in you is 
is unity. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, uh, well, mm, as we go through this, I'm going to preach another sermon. Let's save it for next time. This, it's, it's important. The marks of the Spirit in our life, I, I, let's save it for next time. I don't want to just um, shotgun these ones. But essentially, um, you know, one, thing, one thought I'll leave with you. If you're looking for the marks, the hallmarks of the Spirit in your life, you want to be assured of your faith. You want to know that, that this inheritance is coming and, and life is crummy and things don't seem to be going your way, and you're thinking, if God has predestined all this, why is he predestining so much you know, junk in my life that, that I can hardly make it through a day? Work is hard, school is hard, the kids are hard. How can the Spirit do anything in the midst of that? In Galatians, we read this morning. This is just the only one that I'll do because we read it um, sort of this morning. In Galatians, we have a list of what is called the fruits of the Spirit. These are some of the evidences of the Spirit's working in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you want to know if you are God's people, are those being evidenced in your life, manifested in your life? And those can manifest no matter how hard life is. In a way, you don't even know if those things are really true of your life until you're put in a position to have to show love or patience or kindness or goodness or faithfulness or gentleness or self-control. How do I know I'm self-controlled except that I get put in a situation where I will be challenged to exercise self-control? So shall we resent God for giving us opportunities to know that the Spirit is working in our hearts? Or shall we assume that God is working in our lives because my life is easy? and I'm coasting along, and everything's going okay. Is that really a mark of the Spirit? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of end there, but not really, knowing that we're going to continue talking about the work of the Spirit. But if these things, even just that comment, you realize, oh, well, Pastor Uri, those things are, I don't know if I see those in my life. Well, perhaps you might need to question whether the Spirit is really there. But if it's not, have hope. You have an opportunity now to be God's inheritance and to receive an inheritance by believing that you are a sinner, that you do fall short even of these qualities of the Spirit. And it is for that very reason that Jesus came and died so that we could be forgiven for all the ways that we fall short and that our hope would be in him and not us, that we can grow and that the Spirit can work in our lives. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would encourage you to consider the words of Paul in your own life and see whether you need to be right with God and to know that he is offering salvation to you, truly, if you would believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Don't despair, but understand God has shown patience in bringing you this opportunity. If you are a Christian, hopefully something of what has been said today would draw your heart closer to the Lord. I, I know for me, would I tr exchange everything I have for the knowledge of knowing I belong to God? I want that to be a much easier transaction in my mind. You know, I'm not likely to have to make that kind of call 
maybe someday, but I want it to be one that I'm prepared for. And so to think every day, you know, what would I do? What am I willing to do to know and, and to be God's people and to make that the most valuable thing that I can think of, that I own and possess, is that God owns and possesses me. Think about these things. Pray about these things. If you have any questions about these things, we'd love to chat with you or talk about these things on the patio as you have your coffee and donuts and let some of these thoughts propel us to worship and glorify our God. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this opportunity to come to you and your word to see that you have made yourself true over and over again, that these words are not just the, the writings of a madman 2,000 years ago, but they are a part of a history that you have ordained in calling people to yourself. So may we trust you, may we love you because you have first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray.